Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today is our first special episode for 2020 and our focus is the universities of the West as we explore the pathologies evident in teaching, research and social activism. Don't forget Looking Forward is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs and is funded entirely by our members so that we can be a voice for freedom. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au and find out how you can join and or donate. Uh, to help us discuss this meaty topic today, we have a very special guest whom I'll introduce in a moment. It's Dr. Phil Magnus from the American Institute for Economic Research and most relevantly for today's discussion, an author of a fine book called Cracks in the Ivory Tower. Uh, the subtitle of that book is also The Moral Mess of Higher Education, which perhaps gives you an idea of where Phil is coming from. I'll introduce him in a moment, uh, but firstly, here in the studio, we have Dr. Chris Berg from RMIT University. G'day, Scott. And on my right, Dr. Bella Debrera, who is the director of the IPA's Foundations of Western Civilization program. Good afternoon. Glad you could join us. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Phil's day job, if you like, is as a senior research fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. By way of background, he is an economic historian. I hope we can explore that a little today. He's written across a range of current and historical topics, including trade, tax policy, inequality, slavery, and the economics of higher education. Uh, many listeners will be pleased to know that he writes very much in the tradition of uh, the great public choice economists like Gordon Tullock and James Buchanan. Uh, what That's what some people actually call economics. Uh, Phil Magnus, welcome <laughs> to Looking Forward. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Phil, I'm so I'm glad you can join us. As, as you know, I've been really looking forward to this. So um, tell us about, um, uh, about the book and particularly why higher education is a moral mess. Right. So uh, my co-author, Jay Brennan, and I first got into this subject uh, a few years ago uh, when we came uh, across a, um, a, a common realization between the two of us. We were reading higher ed press, uh, which includes uh, publications such as the Chronicle of Higher Education um, and several academic journals that correspond to that and the way that they covered the operations of the university systems in the United States. And one of the things that we noticed is they were all depicting a university system in constant crisis. Jobs are collapsing, especially at the faculty level. Uh, administrative growth is out of control. Expenses are out of control. But quite a bit of the uh, conventional wisdom that they were putting forth seemed to uh, operate from a very idealized version of the university system that they never really investigated or proved. And then we started uh, scrutinizing some of the claims that were being made as solutions to fix higher ed. Uh, and it wasn't matching up with the data that's being published by uh, U.S. Department of Education and other official sources. So uh, this prompted us to start digging more deeply into the question of what are the incentive structures that make higher ed work. And, uh, you know, you know, if you ask people what a university is uh, ideally supposed to do, you'll get a very lofty answer such as expand human knowledge or uh, uh, help people become more well-rounded citizens or citizens of the world, all sorts of, uh, of uh, high-minded, uh, very good-sounding uh, lofty promises that are being put forth. 
but you start to look uh, a little bit behind the curtains of, um, of the claims that are made in the university system, and you start seeing it's a lot more like what we experience in just every day-to-day life. It's real people that are flawed and imperfect human beings responding to incentives, including some very bad incentives, and that's where you start to get some of the problems that emerge in the university system. So so let's, let's talk about some of those incentives, and particularly to drill down on um, why there are moral problems so what do you see as the well i mean i'm not going to ask you to rank them but what what are the greatest sure. perver- what are the greatest perversities that you identified or were surprised by in your research right so i say uh, first and foremost is the way that universities both allocate the cost and expenses of educating students and who they put the burdens of paying for their own operations onto so uh, we we all know from watching the past several decades of universities, especially in the United States, but we also see it in other uh, university systems that follow the Western model, tuition seems to be skyrocketing at uh, paces that far uh, far outpace and uh, and move ahead of any other similar product in the market in terms of education. It could be anything else. Uh, costs seem to be running out of control. And we see aspects of this reflected in things like student loan debt crises in the United States. There's a big movement at the moment to try and get the government to assume and take on that debt and relieve students for it. Uh, But we really want to ask the question, where did that come from in the first place? And why does tuition seem to be going up, ratcheting up year after year after year? Is it because the education is just getting so much better, Phil, to clarify? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know. Professors have gotten so much uh, more skilled at what they deliver. What's really going on is we find that um, universities essentially operate on a budget-maximizing bureaucracy model. Uh, In other words, they employ vast numbers of people uh, in faculty roles, in administrative roles, in functionary and auxiliary roles to each of those that, uh, that seem to be basically in the game, not so much to advance the, uh, the students or uh, create a better world, as all their, uh, their marketing material says, but rather to make a, a, a decent career out of teaching and researching and uh, operating uh, massive institutions in higher ed. So, uh, so what in, ends up happening is if, if you start to treat the university as essentially a, a, a really poorly run government agency, a bureaucracy, uh, you start to see some, uh, uh, some of the, uh, the, the mysteries of, uh, of why university operations look to be uh, very bad start to, uh, uh, to, to, to make a, quite a bit more sense uh, through a public choice style model of what's actually happening. And endemic to that public choice uh, approach is you start to see – Faculty and administrators both engage in an activity we like to refer to as economists as rent-seeking. In other words, lining their own pockets uh, off of the tuition dollars and other uh, sources of income streams that go into the university system. So still on – and sorry, Chris, just to stay on that point because it's so interesting because – um, of course, people want to. You know, lots of organisations want to maximise their revenue and, and claim yeah, rent, but there's sort of an ex- there's a, a polite fiction that somehow the the market for courses, at least, uh, is is just that a market, and that you'd expect you know the forces of supply and demand to maintain some kind of a balance. But it's almost right. like the supplier has all the power in this market. I mean, why why aren't um, students able to keep the cost of tuition down? Is is the question. What, what, yeah, what's, so the, what's operating there? And the big problem is that the finance model of higher ed is all removed from a customer 
provider relationship. There's no uh, direct seller of the product of higher education, and there's really no direct consumer. Rather, it's all third-party payments that are passed through either a lender or, in some cases, it may be a scholarship system. some cases, it may be the parents of the students that are financing their education. Uh, what it comes down to, though, is there's really no price responsiveness between what the students are actually getting from a university system and what that university is providing. And to make it even more complicated, uh, there's not really a clear ownership of the university itself. Uh, we operate in a model where, uh, where universities in the United States are either private institutions run by a very distant board of trustees or they're public institutions that are vaguely operating in the, uh, the governmental sphere but there's not really a direct chain of command of where that ownership takes place. Uh, so this is almost a ripe opportunity. It's almost very analogous to healthcare in the United States in some respects, uh, in the sense that there's no uh, direct signals between the payers, uh, the, the consumers of education, and the providers of education, uh, the faculty, the administration, and the trustees. What's caused that, though? So, so as, as Scott points out, you know, there's a vision of a world in which um, students need education, and there's a company right. or a industry that serves to deliver that education to the students. It's strongly in the students' interest. What What do you think uh, that they get that education, and it's strongly in the interest of the industry that they deliver that education? That sounds like a market relationship. Why? Why have we? Why are we so far away from what looks like a fairly simple idea of a market transaction for a needed service? Yeah, so quite a bit of it is the uh, the, the heavy amount of government funding that's gone into higher ed. Uh, this really emerged after World War II in the United States. Uh, they passed a series of legislation to uh, to offer the soldiers, the returning soldiers, an opportunity to enter into the education system. Uh, well, that kind of opens the door to you start offering uh, public benefits and subsidies for other entrants into higher education, some of it very well-intentioned and high-minded, but it's also very ripe for uh, you know collecting the rents off of that. If you have a, a, a public subsidy of something, you also have people that are willing to consume and take from the public subsidy. And over the years of, uh, over the past 70, 80 years, or so of accretion, we've gotten to a point where higher ed is extremely heavily subsidized, uh, both directly and indirectly through uh, government-financed and supported loan uh, industries. Uh, but that subsidy is often just passed right through uh, the tuition payment and into the hands of administrators who uh, respond to the provision of more subsidy by just jacking up the price even further. <laughs> so do you think one of the – so you talk a lot about how – um, the problem with, with the sector is sort of bad incentives. Um, do you think a good incentive could be having, um, you know, if you get to continue government government funding, could it go straight to the students rather than the, the bureaucracy itself? Would that be a, one, right, would that right. be a positive solution? So Does almost like incentive? a voucher type of yeah, a system yeah. for, for higher ed. I know that's been batted around as an idea. I think you do have some sort of functional um, attempts at that at the state and local level in the United States, but it's often uh, uh, more focused on what we would consider uh, non-premium, non-top-tier institutions. So in other words, you can't get a voucher to go to Harvard and Princeton and Yale, can't even uh, operate in that same sense on like the flagship state institutions. Uh, more often, you're likely to, to see something like that uh, operative at a, uh, a lower-tier state institution or a community college. But um, you also find that those types of institutions are much cheaper than Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. Now, uh, this, the the argument that you're making 
and and one of the things that I think is really um, compelling about your book is pushing against what you've described as things like corporatization of higher education and right. neoliberalism and so forth. But, right. But um, it, it, uh, pushing just, against just, them as explanations for yeah yeah. So so uh, but but doesn't this isn't a little bit of that story that yeah there are just you know rent seeking hungry bureaucracies. Could you if you were an academic of the romantic type that. The, the, right. um, uh, which I am certainly not, but you know, nonetheless, if let's imagine that we're academics of the romantic sure, type, sure. Um, wouldn't you look at the evidence that you've pushed out uh, that you that you found in your book and point out, yes, exactly, and wouldn't you say that's 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 precisely the neoliberalism, that's precisely the corporatization, they're just sucking money out of students and governments to to fund Maseratis? Um, yeah. Isn't yeah. isn't that isn't that consistent? <laughs> is is my question. So uh, this has been one of the responses that we've gotten from the book. Uh, you know, a typical academic will read it and they will see uh, seven or eight or maybe nine chapters that they agree with, and then they hate one or two or three. <laughs> so uh, they're like, "Oh yes, Magnus and Brennan are yeah, Magnus and Brennan are absolutely right. Administrators are horrible. They're gobbling up resources, and they're absolutely right. Students cheat a lot, uh, and that's bad for the quality of our education." But man, the, the stuff they're saying about faculty, that's completely unfair. <laughs> and, and it would depend on, on each of the different groups would have a, um, a similar response, but it's a different chapter that they're upset about. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I, I do take that as a sign that uh, at least some of the evidence we're presenting of the problem is uh, it's fairly well received. It's uh, it, it resonates. It's uh, it's something that offers a, a deeper contextual explanation to to things that people realize are going on. Uh, yet at the same time, there's a tendency anyone that, uh, that that is coming at it from that mindset, the idealized mindset, as you put it, uh, will see and recognize the uh, legitimacy and the validity of the problems that we've critiqued. But uh, then when you get to the, uh, uh, the, the the question of what's actually causing this, what are the underlying mechanisms, uh, they'll set all evidence aside, set all numbers aside and say, oh, well, therefore, neoliberalism. It's a super, uh, therefore, sorry, corporatization. It's a super interesting um, argument. Or your book is super interesting for an Australian audience because we have many of the same incentive structures, but not all of the same incentive structures. Right, right. And the one that really comes to mind, um, uh, and and the key difference there is who funds the actual students themselves. And so, for for your context and for listeners' context, um, in Australia we have um, most of a university place is funded by the government. It depends on. Uh, for a domestic student anyway, depends on which um, discipline they're going into and what their degree program is, but most of their um, education is funded. And then the parts that aren't funded, for most students, they get an interest-free loan for it that they only have to pay back right. if they okay. meet a certain income threshold. So what, what that has meant, and, and plus regulations around how much universities can charge for courses, certainly under those Commonwealth-supported places, has meant that we haven't had that massive tuition um, uh, cost explosion that it has in sure, the sure. United States. Um, uh, but that has also encouraged, which is similar to the US, I guess, it also encouraged really large um, uh, sort of degree blowouts. So... Um, uh, industries that didn't previously need degree qualifications now require degree qualifications. And the, yeah. the other major perversity that I see in the Australian system that I'm interested in your thoughts on because you don't 
discuss this um, uh, uh, as much in the book as I think an Australian version of this book would would bring about is the role of research funding. So a huge right, amount right. of research, uh, a huge amount of what universities do. Um, is uh, in research is funded by the government and not just through okay. um, like what you would call the National Institute of Science and Technology or the here the Australian Research Council, but just in block grants for for wow. um, okay. research. So so what? How do you see um, government funded research plugging into this? Right. So uh, yeah, to give a little context, so the United States system is more of a hybrid, I'd say, in that regard. There are uh, quite a few private sources of funding for research, but um, also quite a few public sources. Um, In that sense, I see campus as a competition to gobble up those resources. (laughs) Uh, I I see it that way too, but go on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, you get a a system that's operating – at the end of the day, there's a fixed pool of of the amount of money that's available to claim. Uh, and you see, and you have hundreds, if not thousands, of faculty on a given campus jockeying around in their positions to see what they can get to bring home to their own department. Uh, some of that is done ethically uh, through a typical grant uh, pursuing procedure, a that's uh, subject to peer review. Uh, in other instances of it, uh, we find cases where really suspect research is put before uh, grant making entities and done in such a way recognizing the fact that they, they are operating under uh, time constraints and resource constraints to even review the material. Uh, so what ends up happening is subpar research does get funded, not so much based on the merits of what's uh, being argued, but rather based on who knows who in the system of research granting. Or uh, maybe maybe there are political signals attached to the type of research that's being pursued uh, that tends to get elevated at a higher level than uh, than certain other projects that would uh, argue against the same position. Uh, take an example uh, in economic research, uh, it is a major problem I'd say in the United States that uh, uh, one of the primary funders of uh, monetary policy research is the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> Not exactly a neutral party. Uh, so uh, I, I would say, and you know, I've heard this from friends that work in that area of economics. Uh, they're going to have a harder time uh, getting grant funding from a Federal Reserve-related entity uh, making an argument uh, that is proposing an alternative currency system than someone that is making an argument that's very consistent with uh, uh, certain Fed not, policy. Not, not a lot of I papers have, on free banking. There, I so. have had that precise exactly. experience. I'll point out. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, this this uh, emphasis on research also leads to the other thing you're talking about because when you bump into uh, academics, um, uh, some of whom uh, uh, are on uh, the right side of things generally in terms of free markets and so on, but when you start to critique universities, um, yeah. they, they can be quite resistant. But the one thing they're always happy to talk about is, you know, all these dread, the proliferation of these dreadful administrators and how yes. they absolutely agree, yes, there are far, far too many administrators. And and that's a sort of a commonplace. But but you actually sort of join the dots here and, and point out that, uh, you know, they protest too much in a, in a sense because, again, their incentives are actually supporting that growth. Right, right. So there's a fascinating thing with with uh, administrative growth, especially in the U.S. system, and we we trace back the numbers to as early as we could get them, and that was the mid 1970s. And if you follow uh, from about 1974 to today, uh, 
lower level administrators in U.S. higher ed have essentially quadrupled. Uh, it used to be uh, maybe one administrator for every two to three faculty. Uh, now they have surpassed faculty in actual number. Uh, so, what, so what's going on here is the big question because a university in, in 1974 probably isn't doing all that much more in its day-to-day core functions that a university is today or at least would be necessary to operate a university today. Uh, so what we find is most of the administrative growth is in low-level, student-facing auxiliary functions. Uh, these are support offices that have been instituted basically to entertain people when they get to campus. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's everything from entertain them on the admissions office tour where they go around from uh, uh, facility to facility and see all the uh, uh, the fancy rock climbing walls and, uh, and, and gym equipment and sports facilities uh, to people whose job is to basically uh, bring uh, concerts and entertainers and comedians onto campus. Uh, to, and then, then also we, we see an explosion of offices that have a pretty overt political function on campus. Uh, they, they sit there to service social justice causes. And that could be everything from environmentalism. Uh, you get uh, quite a bit of, um, of, uh, of political causes that are associated with uh, uh, very close to candidates. So almost, uh, almost like electioneering on campus. Uh, but these are offices that, that – 30 or 40 years ago simply did not exist and certainly weren't funded. Uh, they do exist today, and uh, not only that, they're growing, they're proliferating. Uh, they often have massive staffs of a dozen people, each making $100,000 or more, uh, making sometimes more than the faculty. Uh, but they're, they're all performing tasks that I would consider non-essential to getting a degree although they serve as various constituencies, small isolated constituencies on campus that are not willing to give them up. And one of those constituencies also happens to be the faculty. So faculty will complain all the time, I hate administrative growth, they're taking all our resources. Then you go to the same faculty member and and ask the question, well, would you be willing to eliminate the campus office of environmental sustainability? (laughs) I said, oh no, we cannot do that because climate change and we have to be showing that we're doing our part. Well, let, so let's okay. talk and, 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 yeah. and administrative functions that the faculty themselves used to do. So yeah. it sounds to me mm-hmm. as if you know universities have become a place where, in the the, the the eyes of the administrative staff, it exists for them, and the the, yes. the the academics think the university exists for them, but nobody really thinks the students are of any consequence whatsoever. <laughs> um, other than numbers, other than, other than numbers, seats. but really on a, on a on a on a on a on a sort of personal basis, I can't. I think they'd probably be quite content if the students were when were just. Theoretical rather than practical. Holograms. Um, but I do actually want to talk a little bit about um, the academic staff and, and your your conversations about how, how left-leaning they've become. And especially, you know, right. you talk about there was a spike in 2001 where there was a very yes. sort of sharp turn to the left. And I'd just like to sort of know why because you know the 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 faculties have been have been that way inclined for a while at least you know we can trace it back to sort of the 60s and 70s what what explanation is there for for that year i know it's not political is it is it just a generational thing is it were we waiting for the sort of the flowering of the full leftiness of the academics or (laughs) right right so i think there's a couple different factors going in play and to give a little context uh so we have polling data going back to the 1960s that asks Uh, university faculty about their political affiliation. And it's always leaned left of center, but it used to be a a fairly stable uh, plurality of about 40% of university faculty would identify on the political left. 
And then of the remainder, you, you get maybe 20 percent are moderates and 20 percent are conservatives or libertarians. Uh, so um, a stable plurality, uh, but it certainly leaned to the left. And after 2000, uh, the share on the left just exploded. Uh, it jumped from 40 percent to upwards of 60 percent by the latest polls. And that's almost all come at the expense of, um, of faculty on the right, of conservatives and, and libertarians that have been just squeezed out of discipline mm. after discipline. Uh, so the oddity, or I guess the great question is, what changed right after 2000 uh, that broke this previous 30 or 40 years of stability and started this, this sudden, sharp leftward march? I don't think there's any one single factor, but I will offer a couple explanations. Uh, the first one is that the, uh, the academic disciplines, the fields that, uh, that tend to be more political in nature and tend to be uh, even further to the left than the average faculty – uh, those have surprisingly and against all conventional wisdom and all uh, public narratives grown at a faster rate than anything else on campus. So uh, you read higher ed literature and, and news coverage. It's all about how the STEM fields, science, technology, mm. engineering, mathematics have exploded in the humanities or in the dregs mm. or in the woes. But if you look at the actual job employment data in the United States from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the humanities have grown at a faster rate in their faculty ranks than any other sector of the academy uh, except for healthcare. And there's whole separate reasons why healthcare's grown at that, that yeah. pace. It's just a, a high demand field. But uh, they've grown faster than the social sciences, than math and engineering, than the physical sciences. Uh, well, what's that going to do over time uh, if the humanities are starting to outpace? other areas of the academy that are less politicized, you automatically get a, a slow but continuous growth toward mm. politicization as their share on campus gets bigger. But yet uh, but yet, students are leaving the humanities in their droves because they absolutely. don't want the politics. So is it just going to be a case where there's a department Finally, there's the ultimate department. Yeah, ultimate which department. Is all faculty, all faculty, no students. Is that where the humanities are heading? Is that... And so, and it's absolutely the case that that students are voting with their feet. They're fleeing the politicized disciplines. Um, I, I've done studies of this by taking the faculty ratios of conservative to liberal or Republican to Democrat. There's every single way you measure it, the uh, the faculty that fall further to the left, the departments that fall further to the left, and this is things like anthropology, sociology, English, foreign languages, history, philosophy, those tend to be much further to the left than the physical sciences mm -hmm. or engineering, economics, business, anything like that. Uh, those are all shedding majors like crazy. Uh, students year after year are, are actually declining. They're below their level of majors today uh, from the position they were in 10 years ago, which is uh, is a very odd uh, situation. Yet at the same time, they're able to maintain their classroom presence, and this is another thing we discuss in the book, uh, by moving into what we call the gen ed curriculum, uh, general education requirements, the classes that every person has to take to mm. get a degree, whether they're a science major, yeah. a business major, an English major, everyone has to take those core classes. Well, we find uh, there are limited amounts of data on a few of these disciplines and quite a bit of data on one or two of them. What they show is that the gen ed requirements for something like English Composition 101 has essentially doubled in the last 40 years. So in 1975, a typical student may have had to take one semester of English Composition. Today, it's two to three semesters is the norm. Mm. 
So they're com so, compelling the students to do things to fill the classrooms exactly. to justify the the their their and so the students are going to be growing be resentful, I think. And there's a there's a yep. course here yeah. at Umo University of Melbourne that all arts students have to do, which is called power. Um, and it's not power and it's not how to take it. It's and not keep it. how to take <laughs> it and keep it. It's, <laughs> it's the Marxist version of the, you know zero sum, oh. um, and they all have well, to do it. And um, but not only you know the ones that don't resent it will be. It's it's really indoctrination as well. It's sort of forced indoctrination. Um, yeah. It's not a great model. Yeah. So no. what what is it what is it in those subjects? So I, I can understand the importance of having students learn to write, but it strikes me that those subjects are going to be much more um, theoretically extensive is a nice way to put it. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so, what, what are, so in the typical English composition class, are uh, we learning Marxist theories of paragraphs or what, what's, what's actually happening <laughs> in those classes? Well, uh, it's hard to quantify. One thing that I have done is I've looked into uh, syllabi where different readings and different authors are assigned. And we can take Karl Marx, although he's not the only symptom of this problem. He's just a prominent case. Uh, Marx is very seldom taught in an economics classroom, the discipline <laughs> where uh, where he uh, originally inhabited. Yep. Uh, Karl Marx, were common economist. Made. Yes, go on. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but you'll almost never see him in an economics classroom unless it's a very high-level, specialized class in the history of economic thought. Where you do see him, it's the English classroom. It's the philosophy classroom, the sociology classroom, mm -hmm. disciplines that were very foreign to Marx in his own time and day, but have since adopted uh, this paradigm that has been more or less rejected by the economics profession. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and that's very clear on syllabi. Marx is one of the uh, the Communist Manifesto is is constantly up there in the top two or three most assigned texts in American <laughs> university classrooms. And it's almost all in the humanities that are that are doing the assigning of it. They're um, probably not reading it that critically. To be fair, it is say. very short. Probably not. <laughs> I have to say. And like, like <laughs> um, so, uh, this all this obviously has consequences. And um, yeah. uh, uh, so, what what do you think is the significance of this? And I, I've, I've been observing some of the research about um, the relationship between um, the students and teachers' ideological makeup. So, sure, sure. Um, and there's some interesting research that came out the other day. Um, uh, it was cited in the Washington Post that um, it, while the faculty might be more liberal or might be liberal and the student body might be largely liberal, just a couple of conservative or right of center academics sure. can have a disproportionate impact because it may well be the first time that anybody had that any liberal student, soft liberal student, had ever met sure. a conservative faculty. Does does the does the increasing balance towards the left on campus does that have um, consequences that we should be concerned about? So, the main thing that we've seen in student body reflections of it, uh, and there are surveys of of incoming freshman students and then graduating seniors to see where they stand politically. And I see young people are a little further to the left than the general public, but they're much more reflective of the broader spread in the general public. They're much closer to the general public than the faculty are. Faculty have moved far left. The student body is just a little bit left of center and quite a sizable minority that are not. Uh, left of center. And that doesn't actually really change all that much, at least in the best survey data that we have so far. In other words, they're being indoctrinated in one sense by being bombarded with all this Marxiness and critical theory and other things on campus. But 
I'd say the average student, it just goes in one ear and out mm. the other ear, which actually uh, confirms another paradox that we find in these, these gen ed courses. So students are required to take all of these hours in English composition or foreign language or philosophy or history, science, whatever it happens to be that's on the curriculum. But the vast majority of those students learn next to nothing in those classes. Um, They're, uh, <laughs> so it's not even it's not even serving the purpose. Uh, and, and here's the oddity of it. And this is how the rent seeking happens. If you survey employers and ask them, what are the skills that you want people that are entering the workforce to have? They'll all say the same thing. It says, well, all my employees are terrible writers. We need to make them better writers. Mm. You but ask faculty is, the same thing. That's also a schooling, a schooling problem. It's oh, exactly. not being taught at school. Exactly. Um, exactly. I, I want to I stay with that at the moment because this, this, this is the other thing that really comes through because the point you're making is they're doing these courses and they're, they're not actually having an effect. Um, yeah. This is really part of the meta-critique of, of higher education, particularly, say, the, um, uh, the liberal arts degrees that you're describing in the, in the US system. They're not as prevalent here, but um, we had Brian Kaplan. Uh, we reviewed his book in our magazine, uh, right, yeah. the, uh, the Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. So that's like a, a hardcore book uh, staking out the territory that edu higher education is all about signalling. There's virtually yes. no actual content or improvement delivered to young people that they wouldn't have achieved just by the simple affluxion of time. If you, if you yeah. grab a, an 18-year-old um, and then compare what they're like when they're 22, they could have done anything. They could have backpacked around Europe. They could have dug ditches in, in Arizona. It just doesn't matter. Um, and you explore that a little bit, but perhaps uh, not, uh, not necessarily going the 100% signalling route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think we we could be fairly characterized. Both Jay and I are, are sympathetic to the signaling explanation. I think it generally holds up. Uh, but I, I'd say where we differ, where we uh, we add some nuance to that, is differentiating between these Gen Ed style classes that everyone must take, and then what you choose to major in. Uh, in other words, it's very possible to go into a higher education system and choose very early on that you want to study science and focus on that. And you will emerge with a degree at the end of your career, but also better knowledge uh, to enter into a, um, a, a profession or a career that requires scientific training. Uh, I think in most majors that are not done for strictly consumption purposes, the typical student is trying to learn something that's going to uh, be applicable on their job, uh, their, their career path. Uh, the problem is the way that we deliver that is very, very expensive and very inefficient because it ends up being the case that I'd say the average student spends almost half of their time in higher ed doing things outside of their major, and the majority of, majority of that is just fluff. It's, uh, it's required courses that only exist on the curriculum to, to, to keep faculty employed in these rent-seeking disciplines that uh, are unable to attract students on their own and therefore they go the route of forcing people to uh, attend their classes as required gen ed uh, curricula uh, stipulations no that makes that makes perfect sense i mean even that is a is a damning indictment so on the one hand uh just uh pull me up if i'm getting this wrong but on the one hand you have say the the liberal arts the humanities degrees where it might be all BS. I think the rule of thumb is anything with studies in it can virtually be written off as containing any useful knowledge at all. Um, and then on the other hand, you have uh, uh, disciplines like science. It's creeping into engineering. Uh, we understand mm. where 
things where you're, you're actually trying to impart actual knowledge that will be used at some point in your career, but that's being crowded out. Is that is that essentially right. the, the, the point? Yeah. I think that's absolutely um, a fair case and a fair indictment to make. Uh, this raises the, you know, we, we can go back to the ethical uh, question, the moral uh, problems that emerge around higher education, or even as we, we suggested, the moral mess of higher education in the, in the subtitle. Uh, I would argue it's fundamentally unethical to make an 18 or 19 year old take up to two years of gen ed, English composition and foreign language and history classes that they get almost nothing out of. Uh, they may be paying three or four or five thousand dollars a credit hour to take these classes uh, simply to keep faculty employed in those sectors. And that's essentially what we've we've uh, devolved in the worst cases into doing. Fantastic. So um, we might move on to some other things because um, sure. uh, you are not just the author of a book on higher education with Jason Brennan, but um, you've been very deeply – um, I'm right in saying your PhD is uh, – you're a historian by PhD, aren't you? So it's uh, public policy with uh, economic history. Is public the, the, economic uh, history. Fantastic. Yeah. A man from my yeah. own heart. They're excellent. Um, there we go. <laughs> and, and so, so you've, you've done a great deal of stuff, particularly in the last – 12 months on um, what I'm going to call public history, I guess. Um, uh, The way history is used and abused um, in the public sphere by, in fact, practicing professional historians. Um, uh, uh, And and we might go through a couple of those if that's okay. But the real question is, um, uh, and one of the interesting arguments that you've made is that Twitter, so social media use, is actually corrupting the history profession. And I'd love for you to just talk to the listeners a little bit about that. If they're not already following you on Twitter, they can um, uh, they can see how it's happening. But uh, yeah, if you don't mind sort of talking through how Twitter is corrupting the history profession. Right, right. So uh, quite a few academics have taken to Twitter as what appears to be currently their their full-time activity. <laughs> uh, I, I almost wonder if, if we're going to look back in this era and, and see a measurable drop-off in research output because uh, uh, 90% of the American Academy was sitting on Twitter uh, either live-tweeting the Democratic debates or live-tweeting the impeachment trial or um, angrily posting things against Trump. Uh, that seems to be Quite a few of them are actually doing I mean, it. We, we all no have st- to make a contribution somehow. Uh, there are no students in the faculty, so they have to find something to do. There's no <laughs> oh, students exactly. to Exactly. So uh, uh, you've seen this in quite a few of the humanities, but also disciplines across the board, that um, faculty, as they have discovered social media, uh, they've increased their own online presence. And I think the ideal version of this is, well, it's a great dissemination of knowledge. It's a way to communicate with the public. But, uh, you know, if anyone spends more than five minutes on Twitter, you quickly discover it's a very abrasive communication system. Uh, It's not a a congenial faculty lounge uh, debate club where you are teasing out issues. Uh, Actually, what you find uh, in in commonplace, and I've experienced this uh, uh, in many, many instances, is uh, tenured elite faculty that are supposedly – Top experts in their subject matters and uh, and and full professors in their field, uh, teaching at elite Ivy League institutions, uh, are some of the worst actors that you'll encounter on Twitter <laughs> as far as it goes with name calling, uh, with uh, just just dismissive abrasiveness. Uh, sometimes they'll they'll outright fabricate things. Uh, the, the the one example that, that, that 
uh, comes to mind recently in my own experience. So uh, uh, we have this thing in the United States called the 1619 Project. Mm -hmm. It's a big uh, public history initiative of the New York Times to reinvestigate how slavery shaped uh, the emergence of the United States of America. Uh, so it's got some merit to it as a topic, but it's also a very selective historical approach that comes with a heavy left-wing ideology. And quite a, quite a bit of academia has gotten on board with this. Uh, well, it's also a research area that I've worked on and published on, so I challenged uh, uh, in a nuanced way, but, uh, but also uh, very heavily challenged some of the claims that were published by the Times on this project. And that brought me into uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, Twitter conflict with other historians. And uh, rather than substantive engagement, as in like asking someone to provide sources for their claims or to consider other sources that they have omitted, uh, I've had experiences where full tenured professors that are supposedly uh, top experts in their field uh, respond to a, uh, a request for a citation or a request to justify a statistic with uh, grade school, your mama style jokes. <laughs> it, strikes me, it, it, it strikes me that history is a interesting one to do on something like social media because Right. I, 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 I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm sure as an economic historian you've also thought about the differences between economics and, and history. Um, economics tends to think in models so they tend to think in uh, economists yeah. tend to um, uh, try to describe a large set of actions or incentives and, and draw generalizations. But history is a very different profession insofar as it's interested in the exceptions, it's interested in the nuances. If you have a model, the historian should want to undermine that model by saying, well, it's not quite the case in this, or you know, yeah. that, that might be true in the North, but it's not true in the South, or, or, or what have you. Now, model thinking is really um, uh, powerful in public debate. But exception thinking, which is um, and nuance thinking, is really hard to communicate, and it's and it pushes you away from those the big lessons, the the, exactly. the, the exactly. huge takeouts. But it it strikes me that social media is all about the big lessons and the huge takeouts. Yeah, yeah. So so the oddity here is so history is a very very specialized profession. I mean, it has hundreds, if not thousands of journals that are all narrowly built around a single topic or maybe a single set of a couple decades uh, in, in human history that they all focus on. Uh, and, and that they, they cater to very narrow, nuanced, uh, high-minded investigations of a single theme or two. It's very hard to find a, a generalist expert. But I think one of the problems you see with history Twitter and history social media is you'll, you'll, you'll get an expert – that happens to know the American Revolution really, really well, or maybe some nuance of the American Revolution really, really well. But because they've adopted a, a public persona, they also feel a need to weigh into uh, the next 200 years of politics, things that are well <laughs> yeah. outside of their expertise, and uh, and including in cases where uh, what what purports to be historical commentary looks an awful lot like uh, their opinions about the last election projected on the previous 200 years. And, and that's the, and, and just to, uh, you mentioned the 1619 project because that's where it's from where I have been sitting anyway, that's where it's come out really clearly. And as you say, it's a, um, you know, it's an admirable project in many ways, but it's relied on this genre of new historical writing that, goes loosely under this new history of capitalism and that's an yes. attempt to try to rewrite the history of 
um, global capitalism, the, the spark in economic growth that kicked off since the 18th century around things like colonial atrocities, around slavery. And it, it, and it, and it strikes me as an attempt to just really um, – to, to, to put the model thinking back into what is actually yeah. an incredibly complex emergence of institutional forms that um, supported growth. I think what's happening yeah. on, on Twitter in terms of historians, and we've done a lot of work at the IPA in, in terms of what is being taught in history at universities in Australia, and it's pretty dire. You can imagine it's all um, class, race and gender and everything sure, sure. you'd imagine. So whatever the, the historical period is, they'll look at it through, through that lens. And that's a very easy lens to replicate on, on Twitter. You, um, yeah. Yeah. It's very simple. Yeah. It's it's completely unnuanced, and and you can just look at any period of history you wish through through that lens, and it's perfect for the the word cunt, the word, the Twitter, whatever it is, one hundred and twenty, right. two hundred sixty, two hundred sixty. Sorry, um, and I think that's part of the problem because the historians really have taken on this this way of looking at the world um, compared to the compared to other other um, disciplines in the humanities for, from from our experience. Um, so I think that might explain why. So many academics, so many historians behave so badly on Twitter. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's oversimplification, and that's the oddity of it. I mean, that there are very good and valid reasons to study the history of race, to study the history of gender, and so forth. Uh, but they they are complex, detailed, nuanced topics. They're not something that you can understand in a tweet or or, or even a uh, a fairly established monograph. Uh, but what we have is, a, is almost like a uh, an oversimplification around this lens uh, that yields very unrigorous scholarship that's all reductionist in nature to uh, here's a political point about race or here's a political point about gender. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, I think that that crowds out uh, better and more sophisticated and uh, and more tempered uh, attempts to investigate. Uh, some of the same questions and do so with with, with solid evidence as the background. Well, it's quite intellectually lazy, isn't it? Really, um, and it goes yes. back to so your, the, the immorality of of really, if you think about what they should be doing in the faculty um, and they're not, which is which is which is tackling that complexity and actually going back to the library and opening books again. Um, you know, dusty copies of things that were written three or four hundred years ago. And right. it's like they're probably just not. They can't be bothered doing that. It's it's um, it's much easier to go on Twitter. Yep, yep. And a lot more fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but so you've talked a lot about um, hyper-politicized disciplines. Um, yes. And English yes. is one of them and, and hopefully um, history does not become one of them, but maybe it's moving in that direction. But what, 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 should, what could be done? What, what, does a, what does a Phil Magnus reform movement or social movement. Phil Magnus University. The Phil Magnus University. Right, right. What, what, uh, what, so, what should, so if I could start with a blank slate and give us a, a well, university. Or, or, or just write a law or, or kill a law or, or whatever it is that you, you think. But but is there, is there a path through this is really what I'm asking. Sure. Uh, so I think we're already starting to see some signs of the path that may be foisted upon it, uh, whether the university likes it or not, and that is students voting with their feet. Uh, they're fleeing history and philosophy in English, not because they dislike history, philosophy, and English, but because those disciplines now cater to such a narrow slice of the political spectrum that uh, they, they basically cut themselves off from a prospective audience. And I think it's really tragic of it. It's, it's one of the faults. I mean, there is a thirst for historical knowledge we see 
all over the place. Uh, movies that are on historical themes are often very popular. There are documentaries and TV shows on on, on public broadcasting that are always smash hits uh, that spill over into the public mainstream. There's a thirst for this type of knowledge, but you can't get it anymore in the university system. Uh, so people voting with their feet, I think that eventually starts to put some budgetary pressures. Uh, in other words, the gen eds can only get you so far in sustaining a faculty. Uh, at some point, there's going to be a break when uh, universities start to realize that uh, a lot of these programs are bloated in sizes themselves relative to the number of the students they're able to attract. So maybe that becomes a pressure point. If I were to offer reform, one of the first things I'd say would be to eliminate gen ed requirements, uh, just cut them across the board. Uh, if you wanted to do something of a more liberal arts theme, switch over to uh, so some of the um, some of the better functioning universities, I'd say, as a model, use more like a basket system where you are tasked that you have to take, say, six classes across all of these different fixed disciplines. But the choice is yours beyond that. As long as you hit the math credit, the science credit, the fine arts credit, it can be anything and everything. Uh, that introduces a little bit more of a marketplace than a, as opposed to you must take. English Composition 101, 102, and 103, followed by uh, British literature through the lens of Karl Marx, which is, <laughs> is much more in the line of, uh, I think, what uh, the rigidity that we've started to see emerge. Uh, also, I'd say get rid of these these uh, these god-awful first-year experience classes that are taught everywhere. What is a first-year experience uh, class? Take us through. Oh, yeah, first-year experience classes. You I feel like you get campus. the first-year experience Being for free. Being in first-year, yeah. <laughs> oh, essentially, right, right. Well, what? it's... it's uh, you know, the, the, the idea behind it is that students show up on campus and, and they're young people. They don't quite know what they want to do. So in addition to taking the, the standard curriculum of courses they're required to, they almost sit in this this, uh, this massive seminar where they read the same book together or work through a uh, thematic discussion of, and it's always on some social problems. So it'll be like environmental justice oh, uh, you, you get these classes and they're, they're often taught in really awful ways the, the, the types that have a lot of group projects in them and a professor that doesn't really lecture so much as tries to facilitate a, uh, uh, a discussion of feelings and what, what, what it really ends up being is that these courses are uh, just a massive waste of time and money because no one really gets anything out of it but they do employ faculty in disciplines that have trouble attracting students. So suppose you have a poetry department that uh, no one signs up for the poetry class and you're, you're looking around, well, we need someone to teach the first year experience course. Oh, there's professor so-and-so in the poetry department. <laughs> Come on over. And, and they'll, they'll put them in that. So uh, uh, it really becomes, you know, it's another face of this, uh, this wealth transfer mechanism from uh, economically precarious 18 and 19 year olds to uh, middle-aged upper middle class uh, tenured professors uh, uh, so, so really kind of a nightmare of a system in that sense. not to mention all the admin staff that you need to employ to run the first year experience oh absolutely well. absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah it, but, but they like that because that, that gives them more reason to hire yes that's what I mean it goes it, it, it's, uh, it goes in their favor one of the other things Magnus University could grapple with which is uh, this this vexed idea of academic freedom and uh, mm -hmm. if you'll forgive me I'm just going to read out a quote from uh, a book by um, uh, John Silber called poisoning yep. the wells of academe because you know for anyone in the Western tradition that uh, freedom of inquiry is is vital and academic freedom you know d did mean something and has some ongoing meaning but uh, in the words of John Silver the way it's interpreted now is academic freedom 
is the absolute concept by which the academic can say whatever he pleases about whatever he, uh, whenever he pleases, uh, wherever he pleases, and be fully immune from unpleasant consequences. Right. <laughs> you know, he said it's been uh, once upon a time it, it was an immunity for what is said and done by dedicated, thoughtful, conscientious scholars in the pursuit of truth. Uh, now it's uh, for whatever's said, whether recklessly or carelessly, uh, incompetently by incompetent, frivolous, and even malevolent, malevolent operators. You know, so it's yeah. one of the things you could grapple with is uh, academic freedom and tenure and that whole nest of, nest of issues. Sure, sure. So. Uh I'm going to paraphrase a quote from uh, – this is one of my intellectual heroes, Jim Buchanan, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is uh, very obviously comes through in some of the work. But uh, he used to liken uh, the emergent case uh, ar around what academic freedom is deployed for, especially on um, – you know, he was noticing a leftward trend in the academy in his own day. So he's writing in, in the 1970s for some context. But he says that the average faculty member approaches – the university system as this public funded entity where he expects the taxpayers to walk up to a wall and throw a bag of money over it and never ask what happens to that money when it falls on the other side of the wall. And I think we're actually seeing quite a bit of that effect because, you know, some of the faculty that, uh, that very heavily rely on public funding to operate these institutions to, to essentially subsidize what they do also are the loudest opponents to any and every form of budgetary scrutiny and oversight that comes from public expenditure. And we've got a bit of a paradox here because, uh, you know, I, I value academic freedom and would adhere to it as a steadfast principle that I think we absolutely need to protect open inquiry, uh, especially for minority viewpoints. So there's another thing that's, that is not often afforded, but minority viewpoints need academic freedom. At the same time, the fact that we are publicly subsidizing and investing resources of the taxpayers into the university system comes with an obligation that the university is a good steward of those resources. Uh, that would be uh, the same would be true of uh, the the public roads construction crew if it was taking uh, uh, gobs of public money and uh, rather than building the roads it was supposed to be building was uh, re-diverting them into vacation homes for the people that worked in that agency, uh, there would be a backlash. There would be a, a very reasonable form of inquiry. So, so we'd ask the question, if uh, the public is funding major university systems to encourage education in basic American history and Shakespeare and how to do chemistry, how to do uh, basic mathematics, but that money is being taken and re-diverted over into grievance studies and, uh, and maybe learning the critical theory interpretation of why capitalism is evil yeah. and all these pet political projects that seem to be emerging in the place of traditional uh, disciplines. I think the public actually has a right to, to ask the question, why are we funding this thing at the level that we do? Yeah, damn, uh, damn straight. It's a bit – it's a classic that, – that aforementioned wall, it's almost like the academic leaps over the wall and uh, hits people over the head uh, with uh, his or her ideas and picks fights – and then yes, whenever yes. anybody fights back, they leap back over the wall saying, academic freedom, academic, you're attacking knowledge, you're so attacking science, and, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can't touch me. <laughs> That's essentially what they're doing. Yeah. So, so I'd say you could have one or the other. You could have high levels of, of public funding 
and then reasonable expectations of what that funding is used on. Or you could take away the public funding and then it could be a free for all behind the mm -hmm. wall. But uh, you take away the public funding, you discover very quickly we can no longer support a poetry department with 60 <laughs> people mm -hmm. in it uh, servicing three students. But then where will poetry come from? Yeah, no, I, I think taking away some public funding is a terrific it's a idea. idea. It's, a, it's a wonderful note to, um, uh, to finish <laughs> on. Uh, Phil Magnus, thank you so much for joining us today. That's, that's been absolutely terrific. If you ever do make it down under, we'd, we'd love to have you. I'd love to. Love to. Excellent. Um, so today, uh, Phil, you've been uh, listening to me, Scott Hargraves, uh, also Dr Chris Berg. Thank you so much, Phil. And Dr. Yeah, Bella Debrera. Thank you. And for Thank our li listeners, uh, we'll be back with our regular episode of Looking Forward next week. Thanks very much.